God, right now, we just want to take a moment, Lord, just to focus on that, that you are marvelous, Lord. Your plan is marvelous. Your purposes are marvelous. And Heavenly Father, because of who you are and because of what you've done on our behalf, God, we have a reason this morning to declare that you are marvelous. And so, God, whatever we've been dealing with this week, Lord, we just want to take this moment and just focus in on you. We, don't want, we want to open up our hands, open up our hearts, open up our ears this morning, and open up our mouths to declare your glory, to declare your praises, God. And Lord, here on this foggy morning, Lord, I pray, God, that we can just worship you, Lord. From hearing your word, from declaring your word, from gathering with other believers, God, that we can just focus in on what you have for us this morning, God. Lord, we ask that as you open up the word this morning, God, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. God, that you have called us to live an incredible life, Lord. And that's not just words spoken. That's not just fluff. Jesus, you are, you are commanding that of us. And so, God, in this moment, I pray, Lord, that we could just be obedient, not just hear the word, but also to do the word. Father, we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we are um, in the middle of a series called The Incredible Life. And if I'm going to be honest... Uh, that word incredible gets thrown around a whole bunch, right? I mean, we use this word for just about everything, right? We talk about that shot that that guy made at the buzzer last night. That was incredible, right? We use the word for that. We use the word for the food that we eat, right? Those shrimp my mom made a couple weeks ago were incredible, and that's just a plug for maybe soon we can get that again. Um, we say this about everything. How was your vacation, Bob? It was incredible. We use the word a lot. And to be honest with you, I use the word probably way too much. If I'm going to be honest, I use it quite a bit. A couple of years ago, um, I, what makes this even funnier is I wasn't even preaching the message. All I was doing that morning was giving announcements. So I'm up here giving announcements, and apparently I must have said that word a lot in the announcements. And I come off stage, and I'm over here, and I'm, I'm just hanging out, and uh, a gentleman walks up to me uh, during, during that time, and uh, he might have been joking, he might not have, I don't really know, but um, he looks at me and he says, you know, everything can't be incredible, right? Like the nature of the word incredible, not everything can be incredible. And, and I want to just say this, and, and he's right, obviously. Um, but I want to just say this. Sorry, I think I got a little mic trouble going on this morning. I want to say this. I would rather my life be overcharacterized by the word incredible than by the word mediocre. 
I would rather people say about my life and about my language and about the way I think and talk about stuff, I would rather be overcharacterized by the word incredible than the word mediocre. If we're going to be honest, uh, Daniel, do you, mind, do you want me to just grab a handheld? Yes? Or are we good? Get the handheld? Awesome. Sorry, guys. Hold on one second here. Having a little mic trouble. Check, check, check. All right, here we go. Sorry about that. I would rather my life be characterized by the word incredible, not the word mediocre. But here's the truth for a lot of us in the room. A lot of us in the room, and maybe we know people like this, and maybe we even feel this. When we look at our lives, we start to think maybe, just maybe, our, our typical day and our typical life looks mediocre. I mean, think about this for just a minute. Most all of us in this room kind of have a general plan and purpose that looks very similar to this. We're born. Then from birth to about 18, the only goal on the horizon for most is to graduate school. We graduate school, then what do we do? We go find a job. Once we find a job, a lot of us, we decide what? We're going to get married. We find someone, we get married, then what do we do? The next thing on the agenda for most people is, all right, now it's time to have some kids and raise some kids. And so then we go through that process. We're going to raise some kids. Then what do we do? Then we get to a point where our kids get out of the house. We become empty nesters. And then we get another opportunity. We get the opportunity to serve our parents, our aging parents, by taking care of them. And somewhere in the midst of taking care of them comes a big word that a lot of us kind of get excited about, the word retirement. And then when we, when we retire, what's left? What's left then for most people is this idea of preparing to leave this earth. And we go through this general Idea, And no matter where you are on the spectrum this morning, this is where most people's lives progress. And you find yourself in different places like this. And sure, you may have had a few hobbies here or there. You may have had some vacations. And you may have had a few incredible days. But when the last day comes of you being here on earth, what did your life count for? What did your life Ma- did, it, did your life matter? Was your life incredible? I'm going to be honest. I want my life to count for something. I want my life to count for something more than just going to work every day. I want my life to count for something more than just getting my kids out of the house. I want my life to count for something more than just saving up for a retirement I want my life to count for something. And here's the truth. I think most of us in this room, if we were honest, no matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum of life, most of us want our lives to count for something. We want to get to the end of our life and say, that was an incredible life. Yet for many of us, our days and ultimately our lives have become a casualty of our circumstances. I'm going to say that again. Many of our days and ultimately our lives have become a casualty of our circumstances. 
We have bought into the lie that a moment, a day, or a life is made incredible by the circumstances that surround it. And this is a dangerous place for us to live. That for a lot of us, we've bought bought into this. I've bought into this. That my day is determined as incredible based on what circumstances surrounded that day. And that's not what God teaches us. The incredible life is not based on our outer circumstances. This is in your introduction. The incredible life is not based on our outer circumstances, but on our inner choices. It's based on our inner choices. Living an incredible life doesn't factor whether COVID's going on or not. And for some of us, it has, right? We've looked at this last year and we've thought, man, This can't be an incredible year because of COVID. According to God's word, that's not a factor in what makes something incredible or not. Living an incredible life doesn't factor in what tropical destination you're at. It doesn't factor in how your kids are doing in school. It doesn't factor in how your job is going. Living an incredible life looks like this. That every day, every day we either choose to live the incredible life Or we slip into mediocrity. And the reason many of us never experience the incredible life is because we have become victims of whatever life has thrown our way. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Are you a victim of that? Are you a victim of the circumstances that you find yourself in? You see, I think every one of us in this room, and maybe you're this person. I'm, I, I'm struggling to be this person, but I want to be this person. Most of us in this room know someone in our life that is just flat out living the incredible life. And it's not because they got money. It's not because they get to do all the fun things they want to do. It's because they have an inner perspective that is just mind-blowing and world-changing. And that is what God is calling each and every one of us to, to live out the incredible life. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Jesus comes on the scene and really more than anyone ever did, really shakes up the status quo. He shakes up this idea of mediocrity. And everything Jesus says on living the incredible life, if we're honest, was pretty radical. These are not like little small things. These are pretty radical things that Jesus says. And because of that, he shakes up the religious establishments. He shakes up what that all looks like. And because of this, the religious are not happy with him. In fact, every time they get a chance, they continue to try to pursue ways to catch Jesus off guard, to catch catch him in some kind of scheme. And here's what we see. We see that very scheme take place right here in Luke chapter 10. This is not the first time it's happened, but Jesus is there. He's with disciples. He's with people following him. He's with people that are skeptical, like this man that we're about to read up about here. But in Luke 10, 25, you had this guy that comes and he presents to Jesus this mediocre plot, this mediocre scheme to catch Jesus in his words. And look at what it says in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer. 
Now, this is not like a lawyer like we think of a lawyer. This is basically it means the expert in the law, the expert in the first five books of the Bible. This expert, most people believe, most scholars believe that these lawyers, these experts in the law, not only knew the law, they had the law memorized. Now, can you imagine that? The first five books of the Bible memorized, word for word. So this guy knows Scripture really well. And behold, a lawyer, an expert of the law, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to gain the incredible life? Now, this is a great question, and we hear this all throughout Scripture. It's a great question to ask, but if you look at the motivation behind why he's asking this, it's not really the perfect question. Because here's what this lawyer is thinking. He's thinking, what do I need to get and have at the end of my life? Like when I get to the end of my life, how do I get this thing that's going to come after life? And yes, that's important. But here's the thing. When we think about eternal life, when we think about the incredible life, we tend to think that the incredible life is just something we gain at the end of our life. We tend to think that all that the incredible life is, all the eternal life is, is basically just waiting around to die or waiting around for Jesus to come back. And we're just sitting around and we're thinking, okay, once he comes back, then I can have eternal life. Then I can start living the incredible life. And yes, the life after this is going to be amazing. It's going to be eternal and it's going to be incredible. But here's the truth. The incredible life is not just something you gain after death. It's something you live now. It's something you live now. Eternal life doesn't start the day you die. Eternal life starts when you decide to follow Jesus. When he brings you from death to life spiritually, this is when eternal life and when incredible living begins. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that it's more than just an afterthought, an after thing that happens. He knows this, and he responds to this lawyer. He answers his question with another question. Look at what it says in verse 26. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, there's a, a good word here, and maybe your translation says this, but some of your translations might say this. What is written in the law? How do you recite it? How do you say it? How do you recite it? Why did Jesus say it this way? It's because what this lawyer is about to reveal is something that every Jewish person knows. Every Jewish person knows what's called the Shema. And they would say it, they would recite it at least two times a day. Every Jewish person. And so Jesus is asking this lawyer, hey, what is it that you recite every morning? What is it that you recite at sunset every night? What's the thing that you recite? You know what it is. So what is it? And then the lawyer gives an incredible answer. He gives an incredible answer. And look at what the answer is. In verse 27, he answered, Here's how you get eternal life. Here's how you gain the incredible life. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength 
and with all your mind. And, and here's the thing. As, as this lawyer is saying this, probably every person in the crowd is probably mouthing the exact same words that this lawyer is saying because they all know it to be true. Every Jewish person knows that eternal life, the incredible life, is based on this idea right here. This vertical relationship of loving God with every part of who we are in God. And, and every Jewish person knew this. But then the lawyer adds something to the end of this that they do not recite. So he adds something to the very end of this that they don't ever recite. And listen to what it says in verse 27. Read it with me again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now think about this for just a second. Where is this lawyer pulling this from? He's pulling it from Leviticus 19, but why is he putting these two things together? It's clear that this guy, this expert in the law, has been following Jesus around. Because this was, for lack of a better word, this was Jesus' stump speech right here. The idea of combining the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, with Leviticus 19 and saying this is what life, eternal life, is about. These are the greatest commandments in Scripture out of all of them. These are it. And so this lawyer is telling Jesus what Jesus has already quoted himself, what Jesus has been saying to followers all over. This idea, this signaled this shift between not just a vertical orientation to God, but a horizontal orientation to others. That it's not just the eye on the sky keeping God happy. It's this idea that we cannot please God if we do not love others well. You can't please God if you don't love the people around you. And the scope of your worship and love doesn't just end with a love for God. In fact, there's another way to say this. The love of God doesn't just terminate here. It's not this idea that God loves me and I receive that love and I just keep it all to myself. No, it's this idea that God's love passes through me, that we become a conduit of God's mercy, God's grace, God's affection, and God's love. And Jesus knows this. And so he says to the man in verse 28, And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. That's right. Do this and you will live. Now what's interesting here, the word live it has a certain tense. The tense, and some of you might be like, all right, I don't care about this, but hang with me. The tense of this word is future, active, indicative. And here's what it means. It's not talking about this idea that you will live sometime in the future once and beyond. No, he's talking about this idea that as you begin to do these things, loving God and loving others, that's where life starts. And that living is something that continues. That the incredible life starts when we begin to do these things well. Loving God and loving others. That the incredible life is both vertical, a love for God, and horizontal, a love for others. 
We've said this for years, and I remember the first time we said this. It was back years ago when Rick Warren wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Does anybody remember the first chapter? The first chapter, the, the words at the top of the page were these words. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God, and it's about others. And notice this, he doesn't tell us in this verse, it says love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't tell us in this verse to love ourselves. Why? Because Jesus is already making the assumption that we already love ourselves. And here's how I know that you love yourself. And here's how I know I love myself. Because when we're hungry, what do we do? We eat. When we're cold, what do we do? We clothe ourselves. We put more clothes on. What do we do when we're tired? We go home and we rest. We get in our shelter and we rest. These are ways that we show that we already love ourselves, that we know how to take care of ourselves. And we don't just talk about being hungry. It's not like we're saying, man, I sure am hungry and don't do anything about it. It's not that we just talk about being clothed, uh, cold. We actually do something about it. And this is what Jesus is saying here, that our love for others should be the same way. Love for ourselves leads us to action, not simply talk. And the same should be true with others. This is what the incredible life looks like. A God-centered and others-focused existence. And this lawyer gives Jesus's, gives Jesus Jesus' answer right here in the text. But then this lawyer gets to the real question. That wasn't the question that the lawyer was trying to trip up Jesus with. He had another question, and here's what the question was. And this was kind of a mediocre question. It was a mediocre requirement. Look at what it says here in verse 29. But he, this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus, if you're saying to me, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, that's all fine and well. But here's the real question, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? What is the lawyer really wanting to know? What is it that he's really asking here? Here's what he's asking. What's the minimum amount of loving my neighbor required to get God's favor and gain the incredible life? What's the minimum amount of loving my neighbor required to get God's favor and gain the incredible life? And let's be honest, before we kind of bash this lawyer for such a irate and audacious, audacious question, let's be honest, we've all asked questions like this, haven't we? When it comes to sinning in our lives, what's the question we always seem to ask? Kids ask it a lot more than adults, but let's be honest, adults ask the question too. How far can I go without sinning? How far can I go without sinning? In fact, for teenagers, this is a big deal because it's almost like this line of purity right here, this line of stepping over is sinful living. And what do, what do teenagers ask? What do people ask? They say, how far can I get before I step off into sin. 
I mean, can I stand right here half on and half off and be okay? And if we're honest, most adults kind of think this way as well. How far can I go without sinning? When it comes to sinning, we always ask, how far is too far? But here's the thing. When it comes to serving, when it comes to loving people, if this is our loving people area, if this is what it means to serve others and bring others into the kingdom of God, you know what we ask? We ask this question. How short is too short? How, how short is too short? Can I do this and, and, and be loving people? Is that okay if I do just, maybe I can come back a little bit. Like, is this okay? Like, does this put me, does this make me a good person, Jesus? Does this make me a person that loves you and technically loves others? We're always asking this question. When it comes to sin, we're always saying, hey, how far is too far? When it comes to serving others, how short is too short? What's the least amount required of loving others? And look at how Jesus answers this man. He asks the question, the man asks, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus says this in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this is interesting. Jesus answers this man's question with a story. And not just any story, a story that's probably one of the most famous stories in Scripture. One of the most famous parables in scripture, scripture, Jesus tells us an incredible story. The story, he begins the story of the good Samaritan. And here's the thing, we all know this story. Imagine, just think about this for a minute. 2,000 years, a story that was told 2,000 years ago has now saturated itself, not just in American culture. You can go to just about anywhere in the world and people would know this story. Even if they don't know Jesus, even if they don't know the Bible, they've heard of the Good Samaritan. It's a popular story. In fact, this week here at Pleasant City Church, we have officially made history with this story. It's the first time... This has ever happened. So literally, Wednesday night, and, and we don't coordinate these things. Um, it would be cool if we did, maybe. But we didn't coordinate this or anything. But Wednesday night, I get down there, and our student pastor, Christian Harmon, guess what he's preaching on? Good Samaritan. Guess what we're doing this morning? We're preaching on the Good Samaritan. And then I found this out this week. Guess what Clubhouse is teaching this morning, the kids' ministry this morning? The Good Samaritan. First time in the history of our church that all three of the big ministries that happen on Sunday mornings, all of them are happening together at the same time. So God wants to teach us something through this story. And this is the story he tells in verse 30. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this story begins with an expected tragedy. And I say expected because, let's be honest, tragedy is pretty much expected. We might not see it coming, but we know it's coming, right? We might not see when it's coming, but we know it's coming. And every good story has one. Every story has an expected tragedy. But it's not just stories. If we were honest... Life does too. Life gives us 
tragedy. It's full of tragedy. Cancer, divorce, bankruptcy, loss of job, abandonment, suicide, car accidents, COVID, and all the little heartbreaks in between. That's what makes up life. In a fallen world, we can expect tragedy in our lives. And in a fallen world, we can expect tragedy in the lives of others. And here's what's weird about this. Jesus is answering questions about eternal and incredible living by starting with tragedy. He starts the story talking about the incredible life with tragedy. C.S. Lewis says this about tragedy and about pain. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, when we look at tragedy, when we see tragedy coming into our lives, we think this tragedy is going to hinder me from living the incredible life. This tragedy is coming, and it's going to hinder me from living the incredible life. And what Jesus is saying to us in this story is that it's not hindering us from living the incredible life. In fact, it may very well be the thing that's activating incredible living in our life. That God uses pain, God uses tragedy in our world to bring about incredible living. And this is the state we find this man in. We found him be beaten, bruised, and left for dead. And thankfully, here come some people to help, right? Verse 31 says this, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now wait a minute. What's wrong with this story? Like, everyone looks at this story and thinks, there's something hugely wrong with this. I mean, this is a priest. This is a man of God. This is the guy that represents God on behalf of these people. This is a pastor. This is a religious person. Like, if anyone can help this guy, this should be the guy to help. And then he says in verse 32, So likewise, a Levite, which is another religious person, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. This is the sad part of the story. And part of us kind of forget how sad this is because we've read this so many times that we kind of pass over this. But this is pretty sad. These men had the ability to do something incredible in saving this man's life. And yet... They pass by. They make a decision right here in the passage. And it's real easy, it's real easy to see. Here, here's where the decision is. If you want to know where it is, here it is. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And look at where it is. And when he saw him, you see that little comma right there? When he saw him, comma, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, comma, passed by on the other side. Notice this, guys. It's in the comma 
where this priest makes his decision. And we don't, we don't know what's going on in the priest's mind. We don't know what's going on in the Levite's mind. But right there in the middle of his mind, in those commas, between seeing the man and doing something about it, that's when the decision is made for him. Right there in the comma, the choice to live incredibly, that's where it's made. And they had these classic rehearsed excuses that if we're honest, they use, and if we're honest, we use as well. We don't know what the excuses are for this man. We can kind of take some guess. You know, a priest wasn't supposed to touch a dead man, and maybe they thought as they were walking, man, if I'm working on this guy and helping this guy and he dies on me, then I'll be unclean and I have to separate myself for a while from people. Maybe that's what he thought. We don't know what he thought, but here's what we do know. There was excuses that they made up on why they could not act. And it's the same for us. There is always that comma between seeing the need and deciding whether we are going to get involved. And in that comma comes the excuses. For us, most of our excuses on why we can't love others and why we can't serve others and why we can't help others, most of them boil down to two reasons. The first one, we have an abundance of plans. We have an abundance of plans. We are a generation that is so busy and so consumed with plans that we say to ourselves in the comma when we see the need, we say to ourselves, I don't have time. I don't have time to help. I don't have time to get involved. I don't have time to do that right now because I have all of these plans. And whether we have the plans or not is irrelevant. We tell ourselves we don't have time. We have these plans. Yet we make time for Netflix. We make time for golf. We make time for books. We make time to listen to podcasts about how to live an incredible life. And yet we see a need. And God, it's literally like he's winding up to throw the pitch. And we walk off the ball field. We say, I don't have time. I have other plans in place. We use the excuse a lot that we have an abundance of plan. The other excuse we use a lot is a lack of resources. We have an abundance of plans and we have a lack of resources. I don't have the money to help. I don't have the education to help. I don't have the experience to help. I don't have the maturity to help. I don't have what I need to help these people or those people. And here's the truth. Really what we're saying to God and really what we're saying to ourselves is this lie that I can't do everything for everybody, so why do anything for anybody? I can't do everything for everybody, so why do anything for anybody? And this is the place that we find ourselves in today. What excuses do you use the moment you see a need, the moment you see someone that needs love and care and attention, what excuse do you use in the comma? Jesus gives us this unexpected hero in the story. In verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and again, same language, and when he saw him, go ahead and go to that next uh, slide, please. 
And when he saw him, comma, he had compassion. This unexpected hero didn't give an excuse. He saw the need and immediately had compassion. And this story, I know it's hard for us to gather this, but for these people here in the story, this would have floored them. Because Samaritans during this time were hated people. In fact, the Assyrian army, the Assyrian people, had used the Samaritans as a weapon against the Jewish people. They had literally taken the Samaritan people and dispersed them all over the area to take up crops, to take up farming, to intermarry. They did all of that, and these people, by the Jewish people, were hated. In fact, it was a race issue. They were racist towards the Samaritan people. No one in the ancient world looked at a Samaritan and thought, that guy is incredible. That guy is living the incredible life. But this is the one that does something. This is the one that Jesus chooses to tell us did something right in the story. Jesus is saying that living the incredible life is not based on position. It's not based on power. It's not based on prosperity. It's based on the choice to act. And this is what we see the Samaritan do. In verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds. That's a great Statement there. He got his hands dirty with blood, pouring on oil and wine. He used his own resources. Then he set him on his own animal, meaning what? Meaning that the Samaritan walked and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35. And the next day, now that's a big statement. What that, what that tells us is this Samaritan man spent the entire night trying to keep this man alive. He went above and beyond. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. This would cover a couple more nights there in the inn, in the hotel there. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The guy basically offers the innkeeper a blank blank check to take care of of this man. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is what uh, what loving others truly looks like. If you want to have the incredible life, this is what it looks like. Jesus redefines and expands what loving your neighbor means and he does it with a perfectly timed and perfectly crafted convicting question. And here's the question that Jesus asks. He doesn't condemn anyone in this statement. All he does is ask a question which makes it that much more convicting. He asks this question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is the question that he asks. This is the question that's convicting. And if we were honest, this is the question that takes away all of our excuses. And it's not a difficult question to answer, which makes it that much more convicting. Another way that Jesus could have asked this question is this. Which of the three loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving a stranger as himself. 
Which of the three loved the Lord his God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and strength by loving a stranger as himself? Which one of the three is living the eternal and the incredible life? The lawyer answers him in verse 37. The lawyer said, the one, he couldn't even say Samaritan. He had that little respect for those people. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Be like the Samaritan. Jesus wasn't just talking to this lawyer when he said this. He wasn't just talking to the lawyer right there in that moment. He's talking to every person that's listening to this story sitting around him. He's not only talking to everyone sitting around him. He's really talking to every person that will ever hear this story. Who is like, who of the three was the one that showed love to this neighbor? Which one is living the incredible Life. Which one is like the Samaritan? It's this. It's the one who saw the need and met it. It's the one who knew the price and paid it. And it's the one who didn't talk himself out of it. It's the one who didn't talk herself out of it. Out of helping, out of serving, out of loving. These are the people that are living the incredible life. And what I love about this story is Jesus says this. He tells this story, but he's not finished. He's going to go on to set the example for all people. Because very soon after this story, Jesus would become the despised Samaritan to every single person on the planet. He would do this by stooping down and picking up the wounded man, the scarred woman that has been wounded and scarred by sin and picking them up to heal them. But healing them wouldn't cost two nights in a hotel room. Healing them would cost him his life. You see, Jesus isn't telling this story to shut this man up. He's not trying to be witty here to shut this guy up. No, he's saying in this story, come and follow me. I'm going to do what this good Samaritan did. I'm going to go and I'm going to die on a cross for you. I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm going to serve you unconditionally. I'm not going to ask the question, how short is too short? I'm going to go all the way with you because I love you and I want to save you. And Jesus is saying in that moment, if I can do this, you come and follow me. Come live the incredible life. You see, this is what incredible living looks like. It's not being a victim of whatever comes our way. It's not saying this day's incredible because I had a good day at work and this day's bad because I had a bad day at work. No, living the incredible life is saying, hey, if I'm loving Jesus, if I'm loving God am I, and I'm loving others, that's what makes life incredible. And for some of us, man, we miss those opportunities. I have just a couple more minutes, and I just want to share a story of failure 
and share a story of victory with you. In 2020, last year, when everyone was saying how bad of a year it was, when everyone was saying how terrible life was, I was able to live a very incredible day. And it happened right before uh, COVID hit. But let me go back and tell you a little bit about something that happened in my life. Years ago, years ago, my wife comes to me and she says, I really think we should start working with Compassion International. I really want to start serving and, and helping kids in other countries and just sponsoring them and helping them by sending some money that they can get discipled, that they can get necessary needs that they need met. And I reluctantly, I'm just going to be honest, failure-wise, I reluctantly said yes to that. And then we started having children children and I remember her saying to me you know I think we should I think we should sponsor another child I think for every child we have we should sponsor a child and I remember just looking at the budget looking at those things and just feeling the reluctance right there in the comma the 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 excuses right the lack of resources that I thought we had and and we did it reluctantly not her but reluctantly I did this I said all right let's do this my wife began to write letters to these kids. She would get our kids involved, our own children involved in this, praying for these kids. And man, God began to just open my heart up. And, and last year, we were able, um, outside of our control, God just provided a way where we were able to go visit one of our children, Emiliana. And there's a picture of her right here on the screen. She's a beautiful teenage girl who has a lot of hopes, a lot of dreams. She wants to work in church. She has a beautiful singing voice. And we got to spend a day in Tanzania, Africa. We were able to spend a day with this young lady. And I'm going to tell you, man, you want to talk about an incredible day. That was an incredible day for our family. Because my wife saw a need and she met it. She knew the price and she paid it and she didn't talk herself out of it. And this is what living the incredible life looks like. And you don't have to go to Tanzania, Africa to live the incredible life. Man, God has given us opportunities every single day to live the incredible life. The question becomes, are we going to use our excuses of the abundance of our plans and the lack of our resources to tell God, no thanks? To say to God, no thanks. I'm going to love others by just saying I love others. I'm not going to love others by actually doing something about it. Guys, where does God have you this morning? What's keeping you from the incredible life that God is calling you to? If you would, go ahead and stand to your feet. Bow your heads. Close your eyes, please. In just a minute, we're about to sing a song. And I love this song. I love that it says this statement in the song. It says, yes, I will. Yes, I will. I'll lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will. I'll lift you high in the lowest valley. 
You know, a lot of times we hear that song and we sing that song and even maybe the way it was written, we think about our own personal struggle. We think about our own personal tragedy. And we think it's all about lifting God up in worship just in our own personal problems. But I tell you, I think this song has a little more meaning than that. I think it's not only lifting up God, lifting up Christ in our lowest valley. Maybe it's lifting up Christ in other people's lowest valley. And there's needs, there's desires, there's people all over our county, there's people in your family, there's people in your home, there's people at your work that need Jesus. They need love, they need affection, they need someone to serve them. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you want the incredible life, this is how you get it. By going after those, the wounded and scarred by going after them and not making up excuses. So in this moment together, as we get ready to sing, let's just, let's ask God, Lord, where am I making excuses in my life? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this moment. We pray, God, that we would not be people that make excuses, that we would not use our plans, that we would not use our lack of resources to say to you, I don't have time. I don't have experience. Jesus, we recognize based on this parable, based on this story, God, we recognize, Lord, that you are calling us to radical living and that our lives are not based on what happens today and what doesn't happen tomorrow, God. It's not based on circumstances. It's based on the inner choices that we choose to make in the commas of life. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to repent of our self-serving attitudes. And God, that we would look way, look for ways to serve others, that we would say, yes, I will. And that we would lift your name up, not just in our low valleys, but God, that we would lift you up in others' low valleys as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.